0: Bokr Tov everybody, welcome to the Aliyah day, hope you're doing well, being blessed, being encouraged, highly favored, hallelujah, taking advantage of this uh, very uh, nice rain we've had here, very cold rain, to make sure that the mikvahs are topped off and filled up with precious living water, so... That was fun this morning, Bruchashem, to walk up to a uh, our catch basin outside and to see the mikvah's um, catch basin completely full of fresh rainwater. And that's always be it's cold, by the way. Thank God, though, I have waiters. You know, you can't. There's you're not allowed to have uh, Halakhically, You're not allowed to have mechanical pumping or whatever to get the water into the mikvah, it has to be gravity fed, it has to be naturally flowing, so you uh, can't take a bucket or whatever, you can't take a bucket from the ocean for instance and carry it to a mikvah and dump it in, that's not how it works, you have to, uh, the water has to flow in there al natural, it has to come from a shem. which requires you to get into the uh, mikvah pool and with using your feet. Uh, release a little lever at the bottom of the pool which opens a valve which allows the water to flow into the mix. but just in case you're wondering how how that works so it's rather cold in the winter time so, or even not even necessarily the winter time it's cold uh really any time uh so anyway but we have you know waders like you go fishing in or whatever the brilliance of buying waiters and putting them on and getting in there is pretty interesting. Uh, so there's that. So that's how it works. Baruch Hashem. Glad everybody is here. Look at all these precious folk here and it look like a new, a uh, couple of new faces. Maybe I haven't seen before. Uh, Ellen Watson, Ellen, are you, are you new? Are you, Look, I apologize if I have overlooked you in the past. Um, Alternative Studos Studios Alexandria. Welcome, glad you're here. Baruch Hashem, to all of you who are here. Sue, Curtis, Roy, Ahava, Shoshana, look at all you precious people. Amy from Nigeria, good to see you again. Mary, Baruch Hashem, Monica, good to see you. Shoshana Keith in the house. And Katura, there's my Marine friend there, Ura. Welcome, Baruch Hashem. All right, so let's look at a few insights. Let's get right to Parashat Toldot because there's so many great insights, and we can offer a few commentary uh, on them, some commentary on them, and uh, kind of see where it where it takes us, if you will. So, remember, Shem, uh, Ella, Ellen from Cayman. Cayman Islands, uh, yeah, Baruch Hashem. Cayman Islands, welcome, I'm sure it's a beautiful place. So, um, abiding in the tents, it says here, so, we we study about Yaakov, and this Parashat Toldot, and, and technically, by the way, this is the fourth Aliyah, but, um, we're kind of we're kind of uh, dipping into some other Aliyot as we look at these insights. Remember Shem, remember Shem, Shem being the son of Noah. Shem lived a very long time. He lived a very long time. In fact, Shem, when Shem, pa- excuse me, when when Abraham uh, uh, passed away, actually, and Shem lived another thirty-five years beyond beyond avraham avraham was 68 when noach died so what you see here is that um it's it, we don't i think sometimes we don't think about that because we don't think about timelines in Torah. i know i didn't i i, I don't think we do but i i didn't i just speak for myself and we don't think about the fact that While Noah is alive, okay, or excuse me, while Abraham is alive, so is Noah and Shem. And therefore, Abraham knows Noah and Shem. I mean, when you really think about that, that's pretty crazy, actually, but it's true. So it talks about, um, here in the scripture in, in chapter 25 and verse 27, it says, Jacob was a wholesome man, abiding in tents, abiding in tents. So what does it mean, abiding in tents? His brother Esau was a man of the field. He liked to go out and hunt. And, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. But Jacob was a a, a wholesome man who liked to hang around the tents. What does it mean? It says here that these tents, these refer to the tents of Shem and the tent of Eber. Of course, Eber is uh, Shem's son. Where Jacob studied the divine law. So Jacob is actually studying in the yeshiva... From Shem and Ever. Studying what? Studying Torah. A principle that I know that most of you already know, some of you are learning, is that the Torah has always existed. There's a misnomer that the Torah came, the law was given at a particular time as if it was just introduced, okay? Okay. And that is not true. The the law was not given at at Har Sinai, I'm talking about. It it didn't come at a specific time. The the Torah of God, the law of God, predates the universe itself. Why? Because the law of God is God. The law of God is is God. It is eternal. Even Judaism, it it is a foundational truth in Judaism that the law of God and God himself are echad. They're one and the same. This should help us to understand, by the way, this seemingly contradiction in that there is only one God, okay, and yet you have a divine Messiah. That, that, throws people for a loop, and, and, and rightfully so, frankly, because our minds, we have to understand, and sometimes we forget this, that our capacity to understand these very, very, very mystical truths, our capacity to understand them is extremely limited. It is a mistake that is often made when people think that they just get it. Like, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I totally get it. It's no big deal. Yeah, it's a huge deal. We can't understand it. We can't comprehend it. But this helps us to understand this because on the one hand, God is God. And on the other hand, Torah is God. The law of Moses is God. That is not a Christian belief. That is not a belief based solely on John chapter 1. John chapter 1 was written by observant Jews, not Christians, not Gentiles. It was written by observant Jews who were espousing commonly held beliefs, beliefs that have been held for thousands of years. The Torah and Hashem is is one. Okay? Remember what it talks about in the Tsar. That Zeron which is the, the small face, Zeron which is Aramaic, is actually, basically it's the revealed aspect of the divine nature. And that Zeron and the tree of life are one and the same. And we know from Torah, or Tanakh, that the tree of life and the Torah are one and the same. So if the revealed aspect of the divine nature is the tree of life, the Etzheim, and the Etzheim is the Torah, then that means that the Torah is the Zeranpin. So therefore, when we have the Torah made flesh, given a personification in the body of Messiah Yeshua, that's not quite that far-fetched. It's actually just one half step up. So you can say, well, how is it if God is one, how can his Torah be one? Because basically what we're saying then at that point is that the Torah is actually a manifestation of a Shim. The Torah is our Windows. What do I mean by that? Well, when we use our computers, unless you're using a Mac, but we're going to use Windows PC as an example here. When you're using a computer, Windows, the Windows operating system is the way in which the average person interfaces with all of the all of the uh, background script and code of the computer. If you didn't have Windows, as a interface operating system, you and I would have to know all of that intricate code. And at one time that was the case. It, when, when computers first kind of, I, home computers I should say, first started coming out, you, you, there was classes in school, because I, I took one, on, on, on how to kind of know that code. And it was very cumbersome. But fortunately, it wasn't too long after that that Windows came into being, and then it made everything. The average person you don't have to be a computer science, uh, doctorate to be able to use a PC. That's that's what the that's what the Windows is all about. So the Torah, But right now, now think about this. Let's be used to to be analogous. Let's let's um, the. Windows operating system is actually a part of your computer, but then again, its main job is to connect you with the computer. But it is the computer, but then again, its job is to connect you with the computer. You see? So if we use that by way of analogy, Yeshua is the Torah made flesh, the Torah is a shem, the Torah is divine. No one, no Orthodox Jew would disagree with that. And so therefore the Torah is our interface with the spirit of the living God. So it is the living God, but then again, it, it, it's the one that connects us with the living God. This is why Yeshua said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Why? Because he's the Torah. He's the interface. So the Torah has always been, it predates the universe. There is no such thing as the Torah came at a certain time, because time itself is a product of Torah. Time itself is a product of creation, which is a product of Torah. This is why when we go into the Lam there won't be any time. Why? Because we'll be outside creation. So there's no such thing as the Torah came at a certain time, which is why there's no such thing as the Torah can leave at a certain time. That'd be like saying you can exist without air. Or you can exist without a heart. Now that we got your body going and we've got you uh, situated, we're going to go ahead and remove your heart and you'll keep moving. That's not, it doesn't happen that way. Torah is the heart. It's the heart of everything. It's the heart the heart of the universe. So his grandfather, it says, going on here, Jacob studied the divine law with Shem and Ever. Okay, this is what it means. It says his grandfather had had the soul of a missionary, of a preacher, and continuously proclaimed the majesty of God to his contemporaries. Did you catch that? Again, I I only use orthodox sources. I mentioned that earlier this week, and I, 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 the reason I want to emphasize that is because I need you to understand that I do not use Messianic sources. They're really not all that helpful anyway. I certainly don't use Christian sources. Why would you do that? I use only Orthodox sources. For everything I believe about Messiah, do you know it comes from Orthodox Judaism? Do you know that? You say, well, don't you use the Gospels? Yeah, sure. But what's in the Gospels is in the Midrash. What's in the Gospels is in the Zohar. What's in the Gospels is in the Talmud. But I digress. It says, talking about Abraham, it says his missionary work was his raison d'etre. That is his reason for being. It says here that Abraham's missionary work, his 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 role or his his uh his well it says here his life's goal. His life's goal was to bring people under the wings of the Shekinah. What does that mean? It means converts. This was his raison d'entre. This was his reason for being. His life's goal was to convince men and lead them to God. Anybody wonder why we're trying to reach non-Jewish people and bring them into the covenant? This is why. This was the mission of Abraham. Somebody wrote yesterday that Yeshua said to the people, if Abraham was your father, then you would be doing what? The works of Abraham. What were the works of Abraham? Number one, he was Torah observant. Number two, he tried to convert people to Judaism. Why people say, why, do, why does Lapid Judaism, why do, they, why do they do what they do? Because our Father is Abraham, therefore we're doing the works of our Father. Remember, it was Abraham. We just read yesterday, it was Abraham who first set sh- who first sent apostles to Asia. We act like Paul was the first one to go to Asia. Again, there's nothing. New in the New Testament, not one thing, not one. It's all a renewal. We talk about the missionary journeys of Paul as if it's something to write home about. As it turns out, Abraham had his amazing missionary journey, him and all of his sons, The, it, thus, the patriarchs show us these fundamental concepts. They were equally legitimate. One is for expansion and one is concentration. So in this case, Jacob was less of an outgoing evangelist and more of a one who studied Torah, but both have their place. right? Gary Allen asked a good question. Why would we need to listen here if we only need to seek orthodox sources? That's a good question, Gary. Um <clears throat> I would encourage you to get on our our uh, Sarslum channel there and watch the uh, conversion classes, um, the Torah, our foundation classes, and learn why there's a critical reason why we need Messiah Yeshua, but you have to understand Yeshua Gary, only from Orthodox sources. Why would you why, why would you want to use Christian sources they they're coming at it from the balconies of Rome, not the temple court of Jerusalem. It's a good question, but you need to look at our class there to understand. There's a reason why we need Mashiach. Everything Yeshua taught, everything he taught, every parable he taught is there's a source for it in Midrashim. Why? Because Yeshua was a Pharisee. Why? Because the Pharisees were right. They just they they weren't perfect. No, they they had some issues. But they were right. This is why Yeshua, when talking to the Pharisees, it says, the the well don't need a doctor. Who was he talking about when he said he was talking to the Pharisees? The well don't need a doctor. The sick do, which is why I bring in the sinners. Uh, You know what, Gary? Uh, I'm going to put a link in the description of this video. So I will... At the conclusion of this, I'll put a link to those to those classes in the in the description here and so give me a little bit and you'll be able to you'll be able to link to them they they are important I think it does teach you um why the reason is a good question though all right so another insight here Esau kills Nimrod so this is leads us to the the discussion later about the code of many colors and um well, let's just read this insight and then I'll comment on it. So it says, um, we're getting close to the point where Jacob Jacob buys the the um, uh, birthright from his brother Esau. Now, later we have this situation in which e, uh, Jacob, rather, with the help of his mother, deceive his father into receiving the blessing of Esau. And and no matter how we try to make that okay, that's one of those mysteries of scripture because Jacob and his mother Rivka were being extraordinarily deceitful uh, in what they did to Isaac and to Esau for that matter. Now, it's... Basically, there's no way to whitewash that, and and you know through the years, through the centuries, we've tried, we've tried to say, eh, you know. but but it, there's no way to whitewash it, which is one of the reasons why I believe, frankly, that Jacob, his life was kind of of all the patriarchs, Jacob's life was kind of wrought with some challenges, and I think that's because, and again, remember from from some lessons back, I always like to bring home the humanity of the patriarchs, because we want to be like the patriarchs, but we have to understand the patriarchs did not walk on water. Okay. Many of us would say we want to be like Mashiach. And to a certain extent, we all want to say that, like follow me as I follow Mashiach, right? The problem with that is Mashiach was perfect. He was from a, a divine conception. He literally walked on water. It's, it's kind of a tall order, okay? Not that you shouldn't shoot for the stars, but it can be a little bit discouraging because it's like saying, I want to be like Superman. Well, we're not bulletproof. We can't run faster than a speed of bullet. We can't leap over tall buildings in a single bound, and we certainly cannot fly to the moon and back in a, in a, in a couple of seconds. So it's, in as much as we want to be like Superman, maybe emulate his character traits, we can't really be Superman. But when it comes to the patriarchs, we can be like them, and we also need to understand their humanity. And in this case, Jacob was kind of a trickster. And, I, and unfortunately, when you look at Jacob's life, he got tricked a lot. And there's always a cause and effect. Now, having said all of that, the reason that his deception and that of his mother was approved, ultimately, was because of what we read about with the purchase of the birthright because in reality Esau had already sold him the birthright and he did so over a bowl of soup which is extremely egregious and this teaches us the the baseness of Esau and just how much he disdained the covenant of Abraham which was a covenant and this is where we have to be careful Okay, Christianity and Judaism is synonymous with Esau. Let's put emotion aside for a moment because a lot of people who come to us obviously are Christians and so on. And, and that's awesome. I, one, at one time in my life, was a Christian. So I totally get it. okay. But putting putting emotion aside for a second, let's just analyze this for a second, and try to be honest with ourselves. Without getting defensive, let's just let's just try to be analytical. Look at ourselves in the mirror. Put aside emotion. Put aside. Put aside, pride. Put aside that emotion that says, man, I can't be wrong because I've been teaching this for so many years or believing it for so many years. Let's put that aside for a second, um, which is challenging to do, I know. But let's look at Esau. So Esau comes in from the field and he was exhausted. Rashi elaborates, he was tired from killing. Now this, Rashi brings us down from sources in the Midrash and, and also the book of Yasher and and some other places. Because that day he had killed his hunting rival, King Nimrod. That day, too, saw the death of his grandfather, Abraham. For a long time, Esau had striven to suppress his immoral passions and his instinct to violence. He had done this out of respect for the patriarch. But as soon as Abraham died, Esau gave these feelings free reign. With his moralizing grandfather dead at the at last and a dangerous rival slain, Esau felt liberated. He saw opening before him the grand life of the fields, a life of freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from, from divine law. Freedom from divine responsibility. Freedom to do whatever you want to do. See, Esau was one of those grace fanatics. He just believed that as long as he was in the line of Abraham and had this connection to God, he could do whatever he wanted to do. There was no rules just right. He could go hunt in the field, do whatever he wanted to do. He, was, he felt burdened by this law of Abraham, which was the law of Moses, the law of God. He felt burdened by that. It was, it was confining. It, it, it stifled his free spirit. He didn't want anything to do with it. He disdained it. And to the extent that he was willing to get rid of it over a cup of soup, over a bowl of soup. And not thinking about anybody else, not thinking about your neighbor, not thinking about your pastor, not thinking about your friends, thinking about ourselves only. How many of us, and I'll raise my hand, I'll be right here with you. I'll raise my hand with you. How many of us, before we came into the the light of knowledge or maybe right now you're just coming into the light of knowledge you're not here by accident but how many of you would say there was a point at which i disdained the law of moses because i felt it was binding and constrictive and restrictive and it it seemed harsh i disdained it and i i i i spoke about grace in 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 a, in a a voice of exaltation and whenever i mentioned to the law of moses i kind of did like you know the law that was under the law that was back under the law and there was there was a disdain in my spirit there was a disdain in my voice all of that is birthed out of unfortunately the religion that came from rome and all you have to do is read the writings of the of the so-called church fathers, and you'll see exactly where that comes from. If you watch the series I did on the history and effects of anti-Semitism, this, this is all rele- rele- relevant to you. But what we have to understand, and this is where we have to come to grips with our own identity, is that we have had, some of us still do, some of us have had, and some of us are in the process of getting rid of it, we have the spirit of Esau in us. We view God's law as restrictive and binding, and I don't want to be told what I can and can't eat. I don't want to be told what festival I can and can't keep. I I don't want to be told on what day I I need to set aside as as unique. I I I don't want to be told what a, if, if I can or can't put something on my body. Uh, I don't want to be told, uh, frankly, anything. I, I want it to be all led by the, quote, spirit, which really means just whatever I want to do. And, and that, that's really, that's the spirit of Esau. And, and And we're so willing to get out from underneath that restrictiveness that we'll do anything. We'll even sell our birthright over a bowl of soup. And why did Esau do that? Because, quite frankly, he was into immediate self-gratification. It says here in this insight, the object is the continuation of the spiritual heritage of Abraham and its and its application on a vast scale. That's what the covenant means, to continue what our father Abraham was started to do. In Jacob's thinking, the firstborn's main task will be To ensure the permanence of family traditions and thus to carry on with complete continuity what the founder of the family had begun. That's another life lesson I don't want to spend too much time on, but just a quick second. Please don't come into the family and try to take us in a new direction. That's not the call. The call is the continuance of the family traditions and customs and laws. Please do not come into the family and attempt to change our calendar, an attempt to change our halakha, an attempt to change our festivals, to get rid of things we've had around for thousands of years because you think in your abject ignorance that they're somehow not proper. Don't do that. First of all, it's never going to work. Okay but that's not what it means to come into something. You don't join something and then try to change it. Okay? So it says here, for Esau, all of this responsibility, say that word, responsibility. See, that's what the law of Moses ultimately is. People view it as restriction. They review it as they view it as constriction. They view it as 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 a heavy burden. And do you know why? Because ultimately what we're doing when we feel that way is we don't want the responsibility. <clears throat> we want all of the benefits of the covenant without any responsibility. We want to live with the woman, not marry her. Because if we live with her, we get all the benefits of her. If we marry her, we have a responsibility and a commitment to her, and we don't want that. That's the spirit of Esau. So it says, this responsibility involves considerable sacrifice and devotion which would constantly curb Esau's freedom to follow his innate tendencies. See, the fact of the matter is that the Torah is to a certain... Well, first of all, the Torah is liberty and freedom. That's what the Apostle uh, Yaakov said, James, in his letter. The Torah equals freedom. In fact, the Torah even calls itself freedom in the Torah. But we view it as, as binding. Why? Because the Torah will naturally curb our animalistic instincts. To the animal, the leash is viewed as a constriction. I want to run out into the street. To the animal, the fence of the backyard is viewed as a barrier. I want to leave the yard. I want to go out. But to the owner who loves the animal, the leash and the fence is, is a protection. It prevents the animal from getting hit and killed by a car. It protects the animal from maybe perhaps being consumed by other bigger, larger, more dangerous animals. To the little dog, it seems like you don't like me. But to the owner, to the master, it says, to the contrary, I love you with a love you can't understand, and I want you to live and have abundant life. And you can have abundant life within these proper boundaries. But when you go beyond the boundaries, you, you think you have abundant life, but what you have is extraordinary danger, and most likely, almost always, death. This is why the law brings life, and the absence of the law naturally brings death. This is why God said in Deuteronomy chapter 30, I set before you life and death, his law or no law. And God says, choose life. No law is not life, contrary to popular belief. It is death. You say, well, I'm confused. I thought the gospel says that we've been set free. Yes. You've been set free from the curse of sin. You've been set free from the debt of sin. You've been set free from the power of sin so that you can walk in newness of life. What is life from a Jewish point of view? Torah. What is Torah? Scripture. So just continue on. He says, What is important to Esau is not a long and exacting labor, which would bear fruit only after his death, but immediate enjoyment and momentary physical satisfaction. What would he do with the birthright, which was more of a duty than a right? Oh, that's so good, isn't it? The birthright, we want to say we don't want it. Why? Because it requires something. It requires duty. I don't want duty. I want self-gratification. I want the bowl of soup and I want it now. That's the spirit of Esau in us. Man, we wish we could get involved in that. You know, like we just just had this extremely demonic holiday called Halloween. We just, oh my goodness, we just finished it. I say we, I'm talking about the United States. Not, Not us, God forbid. Uh... So satanic. I mean, I don't care how cute you think the little kids look in their costumes. It is wicked. At its very nature and core. I'll never understand why churches have Halloween trunk or treats or fall fest, whatever you want to call it. A rose by any other name is still a rose. Some people look at that and in their innermost, they're like, man, they look like they're having so much fun. I wish I could have fun like that. That's Esau. Esau looks past, listen to this, this is important. Esau the spirit of Esau looks past the reality of the festival. You could apply this to any 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 holiday. It looks past the reality of what it is, and it only looks at the self gratification of the party. The candy, the costume in this case, the fun, the nostalgia. Esau self-blinds himself to the realities of what it is just because he wants to indulge in the pleasure of the event. This could be said of the December holiday too, that we look past what it means. And even when somebody tells us, don't you know that this is X, Y, and Z, come on, it's not, it's not even hidden. It's right there in the Um, Encyclopedia, I mean, it's, it's common knowledge that this holiday has nothing to do with the Bible. In fact, it's quite to the contrary. It's very wicked. But the spirit of Esau ignores all that because we want the candy canes and we want the fun and we want the snow and we want the deers and we want the little fat guy in the costume. We want all that kind of stuff. We just, we look past the reality of it. Why? Why do we look, why do we do that? Why do we look past it? Because self gratification. We don't want the responsibility of reckoning with the reality. We just want the pleasure of the moment. This is why the man... To use the analogy, the man would live with the woman rather than marry her. He just wants, he just he just wants the the role without the commitment. It happens all the time. It doesn't mean that the guy is inherently evil. It just means that this is the spirit of Esau in us that we have to reckon with. A mouth of bread, a succulent plate of lentils are of. Infinitely greater value to Esau than all of the ideals of a covenant. In Jacob's mind, the sale of the birthright was but a proof of the supreme scorn which he had long suspected. See, when we scorn the law of Moses, which, by the way, just as a way of reminder, the law of Moses is the scriptures of the living God. It's the holy word of God. When we scorn the law of Moses, we are naturally scorning God. We're naturally scorning the covenant of God. So the purpose of this entire discussion this morning is not to point fingers at anybody else. We need to be careful That we don't use what I'm saying to say, oh, yeah, look at them over there, or those people over there, or the place I used to go, or whatever. We need to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, is there an Esau in me? Is there an Esau in me? Because if there is, I need to root that. Do I overlook the reality of what I'm in just to indulge in the pleasure? Is there an Esau in me? We've got to get the Esau out of us because we want the true covenant and not the one that just says it's all a pleasure boat. End of our Aliyah today. Thank you so much for being with me. Please continue to contribute to uh, our channel here, Sarshalem Synagogue, and also Lapid Judaism. Uh, you can do so by using the text to give or going online and giving that way or calling our office and talking to Katura. But we depend upon your financial support to keep these uh, important messages, frankly, uh, messages you just don't find anywhere. I, I don't know. Maybe there's somebody else that has a similar message, and if that's the case, may God uh, continue to bless them. But this is something that needs to get out to people because it's liberating. So God bless all of you. Look forward to seeing you tomorrow. For the fifth Aliyah, Bezrat Hashem. Shalom Aleichem.